What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Right now on Fast, the September sell-off. The major average is tumbling. The Nasdaq dropping 5%, the S&P more than 4%, and the Dow falling almost 1,300 points. It is all about inflation's stubborn grip on the economy and new fears that the Fed will have to pull out its interest rate bazooka at next week's meeting. We'll break down what's next straight ahead. Plus, a potential new kink in the supply chain, a major rail strike just days away if the White House can't get management and union workers to reach a deal. We'll go inside the ripple effect a strike could have on the economy. And later, drilling down on the energy trade, how crypto handled today's sell-off, the semi-slump as the market closed, a brutal Tuesday trade. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Julie Beal, welcome Julie, Tim Seymour, and Brian Kelly. And we start off with a major turning point for the markets, all three indices putting in their worst day since June 2020. Ten of its 11 S&P sectors now in correction territory. The moves comes as the latest CPI report showing inflation rose in August despite the drop in oil prices. The cost of food, shelter, medical care all higher than in July. The data waking markets up to the harsh reality that a Fed pivot is not coming anytime soon. Economists at Nomura now expecting a 100 basis point hike at the Fed meeting next week. And the yield on the short-term two-year Treasury now nearly 3.8%, its highest level since October 2007. So what is next for the market? Where do we go from here? Fed pivot is, is, that concept is dead, Karen. I mean, a lot of people are holding out hope. That's what we saw the markets rally for the past few days on, and now it's just kaput. Yeah, it really is kaput. I'm just looking though at the S&P. It was, it was here Tuesday morning or Wednesday of last week, yeah. and yet, wow, this feels like a totally different thing. I mean, I, this is not what I expected at, at all. I thought it would be, you know, if things were hot, yeah, that's bad. But we're more likely looking at, how, are they a little cooler? Are they meaningfully cooler? Clearly, that's not the case. I don't know if the next CPI report will give any comfort. I, I really don't know. So then you obviously, no pivot for sure. The question is, so 75 seems already 100% baked in. Is it possible 100? I don't know. I don't think they need to do 100. They can do 75 and they can do 75 again. So I think um, I'm kind of surprised at the, I don't know, that the market was down a lot of points. But one thing that didn't happen, the volatility index went up, but it didn't seem panicky. This isn't, you know, I like when it feels like they're just puking things out. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. Yeah, I mean, the last week of August, we saw a huge spike in VIX on a sell-off. We didn't see that sort of same commensurate spike today, Julie. I mean, what was alarming about CPI is we all thought it would it would be okay because energy prices have come down so much, but everything else went higher. Yeah, I think it was pretty surprising to see just how much it went higher and also seeing the sticky categories just continue to climb. So shelter being higher, I mean, we don't get to undo that very easily. Healthcare is not going to suddenly be deflationary. There's just nothing around that. So it's hard to see how we're going to have an end in sight if we continue to have these sticky categories continuing. Gas is not going to do it all for us. Yeah, especially when electricity the price of heating your home, all that is going higher, and it's going to be winter and cold out very soon, uh, BK. Um, I'm wondering, 
you know, Karen said, you know, the Fed could do 75, which pretty, I mean, most people thought 75 next week anyway, and then another 75. I mean, that introduces a whole new dynamic because we thought 75 and then the Fed would start easing off of the hikes after that. Yeah, if they if they do 275 in a row, in my view, that would be a mistake. I, I think they've over tightened as it is, despite what the uh, CPI says today. I think we're, we're in for sticky inflation for a while. We've seen wage uh, wage prices go up, unit costs, unit production costs go up. And so that those are things that don't change. We're going to talk a little bit later about some strikes and whatnot. Everybody is asking for a wage increase, and that's what's going to keep the demand up. Not only that, on the energy side, as you mentioned, we're coming into winter. We did see a little bit of demand destruction when gas was over $5 a barrel. It's real easy to decide, decide not to drive down the Wally Word. It's harder to decide not to heat your house, unfortunately. And you have today the administration saying, hey, by the way, we're a big buyer of oil at 80. Uh, you know, I've only been doing this for 30 years, and I've never heard anybody take a big order and let the whole world know where they're going to buy it. So now there's an $80 floor under oil. OPEC wants $90 to $100 uh, Brent. You're not going to get any relief in that. But the problem the Fed has is they've raved almost 300 basis points in less than a year on an economy that is highly levered. We don't know what's going to break, and I think that's what the market's just starting to price in now. I mean, it does seem that for all the people out there who think the, feather, the Fed is, is caught on the back foot, they've got another feather in their cap uh, when it comes to that argument here uh, with today's print, Tim. Yeah, and, and so core CPI, as we know, is 6.3%. And if you go back to February of 2021, the core was 1.3%. And we've been having fun on Fast Money doing these year over year, or you know, maybe this is an 18-monther. Uh, but the reality is we've had 15 prints over that 1.2 in, in the last 18 months. We hadn't had that for 20 years. Uh, and as we've been talking about here, the, the broader, persistent, stickier nature of where the inflation pressure is coming from. Like we said last night on the show, I think we said two things. One, uh, kind of absurd that the market's so uh, ready for another kind of inflation pivot, even if the Fed's not. And that's probably too bullish. But I mean, I have to say, I thought that headline number was going to be a tailwind. I said it. I said gas prices are going to be something that give the CPI number some room to have the market rally. Karen brought up uh, also, though, the other really important point. It's all about where markets were coming into this number, uh, where we go, and the same thing with interest rates. But first on markets, that was a 6% move uh, into the CPI print. And now we're back to, to, to Wednesday of last week. In terms of interest rates, think about the June 13 or the 14-15 Fed meeting. That was the last real kind of breakout move in rates. Then we spent the next three months retracing most of that move before picking this up. Let's see where we go. But inflation uh, is, is obviously not going away soon. Fed fund futures priced in 30 bips into that April. We talked about this yesterday, too. So 432, 433 on Fed fund futures is your peak up from 430 in just one day. Uh, I think we probably retrace some of this in the next couple of days. Karen, we, we said at the top of the show that it was a turning point, a, a dramatic moment for the markets. I mean, would you would you agree if it feels like something changed today in terms of how the markets perceive inflation, how the markets perceive the Fed's path? Yeah, I guess, you know, the, the stickiness and it's sort of uh, thinking about, OK, the Fed has these tools. Do these tools address these issues? Right. And so starting to where maybe maybe they don't um, that they can they lean on. If rates go higher, then demand can, you could just you can destroy some demand. But some of these more structural things, that's a lot harder. And then you got to know, OK, you have to think about does the Fed give up on the 2% and did they decide something else is the new 2%? 
I don't know. I don't know that they should do that. We still know they have a long way to go to get there. This is a, this is some some tough sledding. I'm I'm surprised. I think the thing that's really challenging about this moment is it's not just a case of interest rates being higher, but there's also this gigantic balance sheet that we have to unwind. And that is a tool that they can be using, they can be thinking about, but we've never done this. This is an experiment that has just never been done in terms of being able to unwind all of this and what this means for asset prices going forward. So I think longer term, what we reset at in terms of a long-term inflation rate is very dependent on what, we, what asset prices do writ large. It sounds like, Julie, you'd be in favor of sort of just let's see how this unfolds. I think it makes sense mm-hmm. to be data dependent, just like they said they would. Uh, and I think it's hard for them to set out these long-term, long-range forecasts because we just end up in a place where we're disappointed, just like we are now. So I think it makes more sense to not set a long-term course plan, but to take in the data and interpret it as best they can, and also continue to use the other tools at their disposal, like unwinding the balance sheet. Uh, let's bring in CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar into this conversation. He's the chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group. He's at the Future Proof Conference in California. It looks like a beautiful day, day there, Peter. Um, good to see you. What do you what do you think of this print? What do you think this means for the Fed's path? I, I think the Fed's still going to do 75 next week. I mean, there's a, an interesting situation where. The markets are really focused on the data that they see right now in terms of commodity prices. They see in in some of the real-time rent figures that the rate of change is moderating. Uh, They're seeing used car prices slow down. But the BLS lags in how it captures that. So that's why we have sort of this this two-lane highway with both sides going in opposite directions. And I think that's why we rallied 200 S&P points in the four days leading into today, because the markets are driving on one side, and the BLS hasn't yet captured that. Unfortunately, the Fed is also lagging in, in how they are reacting to things. They're driving also in the, with the uh, rearview mirror-type uh, mentality. But I think in overall, where rates go from here, whether it's three and three quarters, four, four and a quarter, I think after next week's rate hike, uh, we're going to start playing a dangerous game with the state of the economy. The next rate hike is going to be only the second time in 40 years that the Fed funds rate is going to exceed the prior peak in a rate hiking cycle. So again, we're playing now, we're getting into treacherous waters, I guess, with this aggressive Fed from here. BK, I'm curious, you know, based on what Peter said, if, if BK, you think that that's one of the reasons why the Fed should sort of wait. I mean, we don't know how this is going to impact the consumer. In terms of the wealth effect and the amount of wealth destroyed from the consumer perspective, it's not just the stock market, it's their, it's their home price as well. Um, their wages don't go as far because mm-hmm. of in- inflation. And we don't know how this is all going to pan out when it comes to the jobs market yet. Right. I think that's the big concern. And I think that's what the stock market's starting to price in. They're starting to say, you know, we have had, as Peter mentioned, this incredible amount of tightening, uh, not only just in rates, but the stock market, as you mentioned, housing going down and housing's just starting to crack. We're just barely seeing the cracks in housing. So as that starts to come down, people are going to feel like they have less money than they did before. And that's going to and then we don't know what that's going to do to the economy. So that's why I think, you know, and I'm more on the side of Peter here saying, listen, after this 75, this 75 might even be a mistake. We know there's a lag. So and we know that there's sticky inflation. So leave it here. Let's see what happens. 
and be ready to start cutting rates if the economy really comes down. But first, the stock market has to decide that margins are going to come in and that earnings are going to be a lot lower than what people are forecasting right now. And we started to see a glimpse of that in terms of third quarter earnings forecasts being trimmed by analysts, uh, Tim, at, at, at this point. Um, but I'm wondering what you think in terms of you know, how, where we should be, because this is a group, and I'm just speaking broadly here, you know, on this panel today, who's always thought that the Fed should have gone sooner, should have gone harder. And now we're at this point where it sounds like a lot of you are a little bit worried about the impact because we haven't seen it all filter through yet. Look, that's fair. And we've talked to Fed credibility, lack thereof, over the last couple of years and maybe even for the last five to eight to 10 years. But if you think about it, this is a Federal Reserve that could not raise interest rates 25 basis points uh, in, in 2018 and actually turned the market into a convulsion. And ultimately, they had to step back in and, and begin the seizing process. And I think what we're talking about here is uh, a Fed that's done something unprecedented. Remember, this is a Fed that also after that July meeting where they, they pretty much indicated we just don't know what the impact of our rate hikes will be. That led to a lot of this Fed pivot dynamic that I think markets have started to price in. So absolutely fair. I mean, we went from a place where we could not raise rates even in good times, uh, let alone difficult times, let alone uh, an energy, a global energy uh, geopolitical crisis and, and, and a labor market that was nowhere near as strong back three or four years ago. I, I, I go back to say I think the labor markets are the biggest problem for the Fed uh, because, again, socially, it's a very big deal. It's very important for our country that the living minimum wage has changed in the last couple of years. Uh, that pressure is only going higher. Unionization pressure is only going higher. And again, you have a, a housing market that I think still looks bubblicious. But um, should they pause? Maybe. Like, I don't think 25 bips on the margin, whether it's 50, 75 or 100 uh, next week, is going to change the trajectory of an economy that still has not digested this. But the most important thing you just said is third quarter earnings, I don't think, have digested this. And they are the ultimate lagging indicator. Yeah, we're only just seeing them come in right now. So, Peter, how do we start thinking about how do you start thinking about equity valuations with this backdrop? Well, let's take the, the P.E. side. Uh, we've obviously re-rated. That's typically the, the first phase of, of a bear market is you take off the froth and trading at about 17 times earnings. Now that earnings, are we going to realize that earnings? And I think Tim brought up a good point about corporate profit margins and its high sensitivity to labor costs. I mean, you, over the last 50 years, you can draw a pretty tight relationship uh, with labor costs and the direction of profit margins. And with, at least on the services side, labor costs being uh, almost 70% of, of one's expense side. So if labor costs remain sticky, if they continue to rise, at the same time the revenue side starts to slow in the face of this slowing economy, you're going to have further cuts in earnings estimates at the same time. I don't think the P.E. multiple is bottomed out. I don't think this market just ends with a multiple at 17 times. Now, where it bottoms out, I don't know, but I have to believe it's going to be 15 or lower which is more of a, a longer-term average past just the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that we're still, we're still stuck at 17, basically, because the E has come in a little bit. Um, Julie, how do you think about where we are in the markets and how much needs to come in? I love it when people say, this stock is down 80% from its highs, or this index is off 40% from its highs, because maybe it should not never have been at that level. And so it's almost sort of a, I don't know, it's a roost to yeah, think about it that that's way. that's exactly right. Like, it's a correction. That's literally, it's, it's in the name. It's a correction. We don't, 
it wasn't priced correctly in the first place. And I think if you look at valuations writ large for most of the economy, but tech in particular, they got to points that just made absolutely no sense. And they were driven off of, you know, narrative rather than true fundamentals. But if you're looking at the broader economy and valuations right now, I think they continue to look pretty expensive. And I don't think we've nearly begun to do the re-rating and the revaluations of earnings estimates. They've come down a little, but they haven't really come down that much. And it's not just wages, right? It was supply chain makes everything more expensive. And then you get FX. And FX has a meaningful impact, not just in terms of, you know, constant currency checking, but it it, it makes our products more expensive abroad. So it, it has an actual real world impact. And I think that that's not at all been factored into estimates, not nearly enough anyway. Yeah. Just quickly, Karen, um, we just scrolled through the losses in big cap technology. So Apple, Microsoft down about 5%. Meta down more than 9% in one session. How do you start mm -hmm. thinking about, especially the names that you own? Right, like Google down a lot. In integers, exactly. Yes. Well, I love to say I like to start buying when things drop in integers, mm -hmm. which they're doing. Although if you're a hundred plus dollar stock, it's not the same. One integer isn't right. as good as a $50 <laughs> stock in an integer. But so I'm not quite ready. That's, that's where the VIX is kind of a trigger for me. When you get selling in integers and the VIX in the 30s, then as painful and, and as scary as it seems, then I want to buy. So too early right now. Yes. Too early. BK, you're, you're nodding. Tim, you're nodding. Can we get a, a full box here? Oh, Peter, too. Let's put us all up here. <laughs> Who thinks it's too early to start buying again in this market? Raise your hand, please. Too early? Raise your hand. Mm-hmm. I think you could be tomorrow, though. I mean, right. it, could, it, it could be it tomorrow. Could happen tomorrow. It could happen tomorrow. All right, Peter, we're going to let you go. Enjoy that day out there in, in California. Great to have Thanks, you, Peter Bookbar, Bleakly Advisory Group. But if it came tomorrow, Tim, is there one name that you'd scoop yep. up? Well, I was giving you my, my Royals wave because I, I, it's not as simple <laughs> as saying, would, would, is it too early to buy? I, I think there are companies like Google, uh, less so Meta, but like Apple, like, like Amazon, that I think you can be building a position here. You absolutely should be building a position. And I think at some point we're going to see that these companies are going to be able to, to hold these levels. But I don't think it is tomorrow. I, I, I guess to me it's a case where we really have to digest the, the, the earnings quality that's coming up in the third quarter. And I'll continue to say what, what we've said many times. I haven't heard a demand warning out of any companies. Julie yeah. pointed out the issues with the dollar. I've heard dollar issues. I haven't heard about the rest of that. This doesn't feel like an environment in which enterprise BK will keep up spending uh, the same amounts of spending percentage wise, whatever it is, as years past. Right. And, and look at what the chip stocks did today. They got decimated. NVIDIA, you name it, they got decimated. So I think that's what's next. And then not only that, you know, we do have a tight labor market. We're going to have some layoffs here, which basically means you need less computers for your people. Right. I mean, it's pretty simple. So I don't think we've seen any of those effects yet. That's just starting. I mean, we haven't seen any layoffs yet. The, the unemployment rate is basically unchanged. So we're just starting to see it. A couple of the banks announced it today, but they haven't quite done it yet. Um, so you, you have a lot of factors here that it's just starting. That's why I was shaking my head and raising my hand. I don't even think, sure, in the short term, if you get a VIX at 30 and you get things just absolutely falling, that is a trading buy signal all day long. But I'm not sure that's the absolute bottom because I think we've got a couple other shoes to drop first on the economy and on earnings. All right. Coming up, 
Freight fears the looming rail strike barreling towards us. Is this the next supply chain threat to derail our already fragile economy? We'll bring you the details straight ahead. But first, we've got more for you on today's major market sell-off. We'll dive into the surge in mortgage rates and the hurt that this is putting on the housing trade. We're just getting started in this special edition of Fast Money. Stay tuned. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. The housing sector getting hit even harder than the broader markets today. The XHB falling nearly 6%. This is mortgage rates spiked once again. Our Diana Olick is here to take us inside the numbers. Diana. Well, Melissa, that's a big reason why the builders are so battered today. The average rate on the 30-year fix spiked higher, matching the 14-year high we hit on one day in June, 6.28% on the 30-year fix. The rate pulled back in July and August, but started rising again after the Fed chairman last week signaled that he would continue his tough stance on inflation. Now, when rates go high, homebuilder stocks go low. Pretty clear on this chart of another homebuilder ETF, ITB versus the 30-year fix. Stocks of some of the biggest names closed down between 6 and 8%. Even Toll Brothers, which is a luxury builder and not usually quite as dependent on mortgage rates. Housing starts and new home sales have fallen sharply over the last few months on higher rates. That first spike in June was what really put the brakes on the red-hot housing market. We'll see if we hold at these levels this time around. Melissa. Diana, thanks. Diana Olick. If you're in a house right now, chances are you've refinanced or you've gotten a, a really low mortgage rate. Do you want to give up 3% for 6-plus percent, Julie, at this point? I mean, I think that's that's a quandary a lot of potential home buyers would be in. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely the point, is you're in a situation right now where you have a great mortgage. There's no reason for you to ever want to get out of it. And most of the U.S. is financed with fixed rate mortgages. If you look at Australia, I think it's something like 70, 80 percent of their mortgages are variable rates. So I think that's actually a huge weakness in their own economy. Same with Spain, et cetera. The UK is quite high, too. Um, but I think longer term, if you think about it, it's going to create some real stillness. And people have gotten used to the idea that their home is worth a lot more than it probably is right now. Yeah. Um, Tim, what does this mean for Home Depot, Lowe's, you know, furniture stores, RH, et cetera? 
Right. Well, I, I think for Home Depot, and it, it took it on the chin today, it underperformed the S&P probably by a couple hundred basis points and has underperformed uh, the S&P by about 10 percent since mid-July. And, and I think it's a dynamic where you may be staying in your house and you may want to reinvest in your house. Uh, but the one thing I get asked by investors more than where stocks going is where are interest rates going. And you think about HELOC loans, you think about uh, revolving credit. Uh, this is a painful time. This is a much more expensive. And I, even if it's a couple hundred dollars a month additional interest, I think that's something that hurts. We just got numbers from Home Depot, or at least recent enough, where we know some of their core business, including the margin of creative business, like, like the pro business is, is alive and well, and their investments in digital and technology and digital DTC are really paying off. I just think you're going to get Home Depot a little bit lower. I'm long the name, although uh, I want to be adding to a position. And I think 250 is really that level we, we started to hover around those June lows and something I think investors should at least be watching. I don't think you need to do much before that. Yeah. And then the other part of this trade is the bank side of it. U.S. Bancorp CFO just saying today that he expects a 30 to 35 percent drop in mortgage revenue in the third quarter, Karen. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be felt far and wide by many of the lenders. Yeah, many lenders, although a lot of the bigger, uh, the sort of uh, money center ones have really lessened their mortgage business by a lot. But absolutely, I mean, clearly, well, we saw a big widening of the inversion today. That was very substantial. The twos, tens, we always talk about, all right, they don't have a giant twos, tens book, but the stocks trade as if they do. And then we also saw the HYG today really take it on the chin. That moves not just with rates, but with also credit spreads. And we just, if credit spreads start to crack... No, no good. Yeah. (laughs) There is a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The little engine that couldn't. A looming nationwide rail strike is on the horizon. What does this mean for an already fragile supply chain? And count on crude. One top technician says the energy sector is more resilient than you think. We'll go off the charts with the names he's drilling into. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's take another look at today's massive sell-off. Stocks dropping hard after this morning's hot inflation report. The Dow falling nearly 1,300 points. The S&P plummeting more than 4%. The tech-heavy Nasdaq seeing the worst of it, down more than 5%. But energy stocks saw relative strength today, falling less than the rest of the market. Our next guest says that could be a place to hide out amidst this broader market volatility. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Certigas, a Baird company. Chris, great to see you. What, which charts are you looking at? Hey, Mel, well, I think we have to start with the action of the day is obviously uh, what we saw in the broader market. Now, if we just put this in a little bit of context here, our thinking has always been when you're in a bear market, when you're below what is still a downward sloping 200 day, the risk to a surprise tends to be on the downside. We certainly got that surprise today. We've been talking about this 3,900 level as major support, but let's talk about this a little bit differently for a second. Let's think about leadership. If you look at the rally the last four or five days, what underperformed 
Fang and semis. On the way up, they lagged. What lagged today on the way down? Fang and semis. So this market is more about just calling levels. It's about recognizing what is and what isn't leadership. The triple Qs, the fangs, the semis lagged on the way up and lagged on the way down. That is not where we want to be in this market. So where can we hide or where can we find relative value? I still think the energy stocks provide a really good example of that here. And what we've been particularly impressed by is how energy has disassociated itself with crude. Obviously, we had crude lower uh, over the last several months. Crude actually made a lower low last week. What has not made a lower low uh, are the energy names. They've been able to disassociate themselves from crude weakness. We think that's the energy sector telling us that the structural tailwinds to the sector are more important than perhaps the cyclical headwind of lower crude prices. And, you know, if you look Um, At the flow picture, what we've been really surprised by is the degree to which investors have just liquidated their XLE. So these are flows into the XLE over the last three months, just complete liquidation. So there's a lot of skepticism here. We like that from a contrarian standpoint. And then I think very importantly, in a market where it's really hard to find good charts, 95% of the energy sector is still above the 200 day. So we like to fish or hunt in the areas that are most fertile. And I still think energy continues uh, to emphasize that. Two names I'll show you here real quick. ConocoPhillips, what's most important for us in a down market is finding relative leaders. Conoco relative to the S&P is right back at the highs. You have to say that's impressive. I'll give you one more here. This is Hess. Not only is it back at the relative highs, it's back at the absolute highs. Both names were outperformers today. They've been outperformers all year. This is a tough market. Seek out leadership. Avoid the weak charts. It's a great metaphor, fish or hunt where it's most fertile. Um, Going back for just a second, Chris, to technology broadly, if technology is no longer leadership, what does that mean for technology specifically in terms of performance? Well, Mel, I I think the reality is tech has not been leadership for almost two years now. I mean, the the blow off top, at least in the relative performance of FANG and ARC, I mean, that dates back nearly two years. And, you know, our big call all year has been avoid these semis. These semis are finished. They've been leadership for the prior decade. They're not leadership here anymore. NVIDIA, AMD, Broadcom, Qualcomm, major top formations, both in the absolute and the relative sense. All right. Chris, great to see you, Thank you. in person. Chris Verone of Strategus. Um, so, Tam, just extrapolating, I mean, semis are an indicator, leading indicator of the economy. You've always said, this is what you tell me every single time, Tim. And here we are, Chris is saying, forget him, forget him. Sometimes people refer to that as redundant. Otherwise, we could call it (laughs) consistent. And I I just think, you know, and you look at that NVIDIA chart, as Chris referenced, it actually took out those September 1 lows and actually are are building on the July 5th lows where the market actually bottomed before going on a big run. It's tracing lower, and he's right. Um, The other thing that Chris said, just when when a charts guy, and we love Chris, let's be clear. So when I say this, when he starts talking about structural tailwinds, he's talking about the fundamentals. He's talking about as an investor, not a trader. And, And if you think about what's been going on in the energy sector, something else. I like to harp on it. Think about ConocoPhillips with $14 billion in net debt is actually going to, at $80 oil, we'll pay down $6 billion in debt, we'll grow their dividend 20%, uh, 8% and we'll buy back 20% of stock in the next three years at $80 oil. And this is all happening with the dollar that's at all-time highs or 20-year highs or 18-year highs, whatever you want to say. Each 1% move higher, higher in the dollar equals a 3% move lower in oil prices. So oil's been trading yeoman-like in this environment. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is true, is that 
if you're looking at fundamentals, for sure, there are some tech businesses that no matter what happens, they're going to be structurally sound. They have everything they need. They are fundamental players. They are mission critical software, for example, things that you're not going to replace. And so when I think about the fundamentals of those businesses, even in a difficult economy, they're better positioned. But if I think about energy and if, let's say, suddenly, you know, Putin decides he's going to pull back from from Russia, uh, from from the Ukraine, what does that mean for oil prices? And is that really a fundamental driver? And is that a place that I want to be in? Not really, no. So I think I'm trying to pick businesses where they are masters of their own destiny rather than ones that can be influenced by so much volatility and outside factors that are especially in geopolitics. Meantime, um, let's talk about crypto getting hit even harder than the major averages today. Bitcoin had hit a one-month high in the pre-market before shedding 10%. Ethereum also dropping. That token expected to undergo a merge later this week. That will change the way the coin is mined. So what does the latest action mean for crypto? BK, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's not great great action. We're still correlated with the NASDAQ, right? We've seen as correlations as high as 70 80% earlier in the year. It's down to into the 50-60% now, but today was very clear. The only thing that matters to crypto is the macro news and what's going on with the NASDAQ. And it's really like a 2x levered ETF to that. There are a lot of things going on in crypto that are interesting. This Ethereum merge is changing the way it's going to mine. It's going to use a lot less electricity. It's going to actually create what looks like some kind of a yield. It's not really, but for TV purposes, let's just call it some kind of a yield. So there are a lot of things fundamentally underneath that are very positive about the merge. But until we get through this macro environment where it's just risk off, no liquidity, it's going to be really hard for crypto to rally. Brian, last time I asked you a question over TV, I said, do you think the Lehman moment has arrived as a lot of these um, you know, crypto blowups that we saw? Where are we relative to that Lehman moment or not? Yeah, I, for, what did I say the last time? Was I right or wrong? I Boy, think you were right. I'll just go with you were right. Uh, okay, well, I, yeah, I love that. I love that answer. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think we've reached that. Um, I think the next stage, what I'd be looking for is some kind of minor distress. So you've had a lot of miners that came over to U.S. because there was free energy flaring gas, all these things down in Texas, and now those energy costs are higher and probably permanently higher. They're going to start starting off, start shutting off machines. And I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of these miners and a couple of these mining pools, we've seen it already, uh, are basically running fractional reserve type of operations. So to me, I think that is the final leg down here. And then, and then I do think we get this point in time where inflation stays high, the Fed has to pivot, there's liquidity back in the market, and that is the buying opportunity for crypto. We're just not quite there. Are you short Bitcoin? I, I am short of the Bitcoins and of the Ethereum. Okay. Coming up, the Red Hat CPI print that rattled Wall Street. How should you protect your portfolio? We'll dive into the options pits for that. And what should you do tomorrow? We'll bring you a masterclass on your first trade come Wednesday morning. Stick around for that and much more Fast Money. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. On this sell-off Tuesday, options traders putting on a huge surge of bearish bets as investors look to protect their portfolios against a potential bigger downturn in the markets. Mike has the action. Mike, where did you see the biggest trades today? Yeah, we saw it actually in several places, so I'm just going to provide a few examples. It's not uncommon for investors to run to options on SPY, and that's where we'll start. We saw in the October 7th weekly big purchases of the 395-380 put spread. Uh, traders spent uh, a few bucks to get 13,000-plus of those. Also, IWM, which is the Russell 2000 ETF, we saw a very big purchase there. Over 30,000 of the 176 puts expiring in October traded early in blocks of a little over 10,000 at a piece. And then EFA, which is the MSCI EAFE index ETF. So that's going to be the developed market stocks XUS. And there we saw a purchase of 52,000 of the January 2023 52.45 put spreads, buyers spending just under 50 cents a contract for those. But those are just examples. There were a considerable number of very large bearish trades in the options markets today. Karen, what did you make of the EFA trade, given you just recently got into Germany? Um, well, I, I like the I like the trade. I, you know, I, I want to buy more. I think that it, it, you know, this is a classic buy when there's blood on the streets. This is really about, I mean, I hope this is as bad as it gets. Maybe it isn't, but I just think, I don't know, the risk reward is compelling to me. And I'm looking at their balance sheet relative to ours, Germany writ large. We're an embarrassment. I mean, just in terms of debt to GDP. And uh, I mean, they're at half and their rates are half as much as ours are. Disappointing. Mike, thanks for that. Uh, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up after today's brutal sell-off, how should you position yourself for tomorrow? The traders are laying out the setup for Wednesday's session straight ahead. Plus, transport trouble, a potential strike looming across the railroad industry. How could it impact nearly everything in our lives? Next, don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Starbucks just releasing updated guidance at its Investor Day. Shares rising the last few minutes. CNBC's Kate Rogers has been following the event today. Kate. Hey, Melissa, that's right. Just out of Investor Day, CFO Rachel Rosieri just announced accelerated earnings growth of 15 to 20 percent annually over the next three years for the coffee giant. That's up from its previous guidance given in 2020 and then pulled of 10 to 12 percent growth. Global comp growth of 7 to 9 percent. Fiscal year 2023 will be on the high end, depending on how China performs. That'll normalize to the low end, she says, by 2024 and 2025. That's also above the company's previous guidance guidance of 4 to 5% growth. U.S. comp growth increase of 7 to 9% annually over the next three years. She also mentioned China will have an outsized performance in 2023 and parts of 2024 because it'll be lapping those lockdowns in the market, expecting normalized comps uh, in the range of 4 to 6% in 2025. Beyond this guidance we just got, so far the day's really been about the reinvention of Starbucks for the future. We heard from interim CEO Howard Schultz laying out his big vision after admitting the company had kind of lost its way. He said cold drinks are about 80% of the summer portfolio. Now about two-thirds are asked to be customized. So the company is reimagining stores for this. They're investing $450 million in North American stores next year to modernize them with new equipment, more efficient setups, and reduce complexity for workers with automated ordering. Also going to be diversifying the portfolio with more pickup, drive-through, and delivery, and mobile order and pay will be coming to licensed stores in airports and supermarkets. And Schultz also mentioned 
this morning that the company plans to build some 2,000 new locations in the U.S. by 2025. Melissa, and as you can see, stock is up uh, just over 2.5%. Back over to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Um, Tim, this is what you want to hear from a Starbucks, but at the same time, you sort of don't want to hear it because putting out some bullish guidance may not necessarily be the thing that you want as an investor to hear from a company at this point in time. Or hearing that they're, they've lost their way, although some of that's not a, a real stretch and hard to understand. I, the, the first cold beverage I have from Starbucks, the next one will be the first one. And, and I just think about what they do need to do to improve the efficiency inside of the store. So it's great that they're going to clean that up. I think more importantly, uh, let's focus on international growth for a second, where they said uh, 40% growth over the next few years and profits will double. But that store growth internationally will be 30% over the next three or four years. That, that to me is, and it's not China reliant. And I think that's, again, leveraging off of the new CEO's international prowess. And I think this is where you're going to get the growth out of Starbucks, even though the U.S. is really uh, the cash cow and the same store sales comps that, that actually have been supporting this business for a long time. So a few things. I, you know, we often see a new CEO who sort of resets the bar. Right. Who sets, so we didn't see that. That's sort of interesting. So they must feel confident. However, so what is the right multiple, though, for Starbucks? And at this premium to the market, with, I think, some still headwinds and, and you know, I don't get the sense. I, I mean, I don't think one can rely on China coming back to where it was. I think tensions are much greater now than they were. And assuming they get out of COVID, and I believe that will happen. So uh, it's, it's not for me. Not at 30 times. And the market multiple is, I don't know, where are we? So it's Below not just the, the lockdown ending and right. customers going back. It's it's this sort of punishment, perhaps, that Starbucks right. should have because it's an American brand. Exactly. For 20 years, mm-hmm. every brand that has gone, not every, so many brands that have gone into China have found tremendous growth. And I feel like that, that growth is behind us, not so much in front of us. Yeah, but to say nothing of just if you even ignore China, they have such a problem with labor as it is, right? They're under tremendous pressure from unions. I read somewhere that a quarter of employees right now quit within the first 90 days. That is not positive in terms of your ability to retain people. So I think the the changes that they need to make in the store to make them more efficient and more pleasant to work in are pretty meaningful. But it's going to take a meaningful investment in terms of just labor costs, but also renovating a lot of these stores that haven't been touched in years. Yeah. Um, BK, uh, Tim pays $4 plus for a venti drip coffee. Venti, I think, is large um, in fancy Starbucks terms. Um, I don't know. It's 20. They might have to. I mean, if, if labor costs more, as Julie says, then, then and things cost more, they might have to pay, you know, they might have margins compress unless they're able to I, increase the I price would, that Tim is going to pay. Yeah. Uh, so in a different environment, this this guidance would be met with all kinds of cheers and the stock are probably up five or more percent in the after hours. But I don't know what kind of cold drinks they're drinking over there, what kind of cold beverage they're drinking. But <laughs> there's nothing that I see in the world that looks like an environment where you're going to grow sales for a four dollar vente, which I believe Tim calls 20. <laughs> uh, the stock right now is still up, Thank though, you. two and three quarters percent. Uh, just when it looked like the supply chain crisis was easing with parts of the system getting back to normal, there's a new threat to the system. We are just three days away from a potential massive rail strike. Both the union and management are about to exhaust a mandated 
30-day cooling-off period. What could a strike mean? It'll mean that everything from cars to chemicals to energy to food to fertilizer could be stuck in rail yards, causing billions in damages to the economy each and every day. This is yet another part of the inflation challenge. CNBC's Lorianne Larocco has been covering the talks. Um, Lorianne, where do things stand right now? Well, we have new news this evening, uh, Melissa. And so the Association of Railroads spoke with me saying that if a d- an agreement is not made by Friday, they are not locking out the workers. And that's really important. So it really is up to the workers if they want to come to work on Friday. The other thing is I am seeing a change in tone, if you will. Union Pacific, their, uh, their comment 24 hours ago was much more corporate, saying that they were looking to have Um, an expedited uh, decision made. Now you see more warmth coming into this, where they're saying that they understand their employees and that they're in active discussions when it comes to this this whole measure of them wanting to have unpaid days off so they can go to the doctor. So does that warmth mean, in your view, that that it's just going to be more difficult for them to come to agreement and so they have to sort of be a little nicer to the other side, so to speak? From what insiders are telling me with knowledge of the negotiations right now, they, the railroads are trying to have a more conciliatory tone. Um, I'm hoping, based on my discussions with the head of the labor union who said, if we don't get these free days off, so to speak, we're going to strike, I'm hoping that we're trying to see some sort of meet in the middle. Yeah. Um, just quickly, Lorianne, if it happens... Could other workers strike in sympathy? Could this be much more than just rail workers striking? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are other railroad workers and other a- aspects of the of the uh, the industry, like the ports. And so, we are hearing that there are some possible strikes that could uh, that could arise at some ports around the nation. Yeah, and we know that hazardous materials already; those shipments have been halted. What's next here? Um, pretty much you've got frozen foods. So starting tomorrow, you're not going to have BNSF is actually going to start rejecting um, these refrigerator cars to going into the port. You also have Amtrak stopping certain passenger lines and Canadian Railways. They've actually stopped uh, receiving exports as of the 15th. So there really is a trickle down effect, if you will. And remember, Mm. trade is very hard to turn off and to turn back on. So every time you have something shut down, it just adds to the uh, the restart time, if you will. Yeah. Lorianne, thanks so much. Lorianne LaRocco with the very latest on this rail strike. Brian Kelly, it feels like investors aren't really factoring this in too much uh, in terms of what it could mean for even just the consumer at the grocery store. I mean, psychologically, you're paying more for everything and then you might be paying even more because it's in shortage. <laughs> yeah, and you can't get it, even if you want to pay more. So, yeah, I do think this is a big risk on the horizon that a lot of people aren't looking at. I mean, the hope is that they come to the sides. There's been some very tough talk, particularly from the union side. Uh, mm-hmm. The letter that they sent this weekend was, was you know, pretty tough talk out there. So I think they're very serious. Um, and to your point is that, listen, if they, they're already shutting this off. So this is going to have a little bit of an impact because they're shutting this down. It takes days and weeks to turn this stuff around. So you really hope you don't get it. But in, in the bigger picture, this is exactly why inflation is sticky. They're getting wage increases, and every union out there is getting wage increases at this point. Therefore, your demand, at least for the stuff that you need, like oil and gasoline and heat, 
probably stays relatively stable, which means prices stay pretty high. Then you, if you add in some kind of supply chain shortage, then you're definitely going to have a longer term inflation impact. So this whole story wraps a lot into it, but you have to watch it for this Friday. Yeah. Coming up, your post sell-off setup and final trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks posting their worst day since June of 2020. The Dow dropping almost 1,300 points. The S&P 500 falling more than 4%. The Nasdaq losing a whopping 5%. So the question on investors' minds, what should you do tomorrow? What is the first thing that you look at on your screen tomorrow? Karen, what do you think? Yeah, I want to see uh, the VIX. I want to see if people really start to panic. And then I'm starting to look to buy things, something safer like the VHT or XLV, Big Cap Pharma. Julie, how about you? Yeah, I think I'm looking at all of my stocks and thinking about how they have handled other recessions uh, because I really think that I want to protect myself. So durable earnings are what I'm looking for tomorrow. Yeah, Tim, you know, overnight trade often is very interesting to watch. So what are you thinking? It will be. I'm not overreacting to the move in interest rates. In fact, I'm expecting interest rates to adjust a little bit tomorrow. But again, watch the duration in your portfolio. Do not get long duration, meaning not high tech multiple stocks. Yeah. BK, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think in the very short term, you want to watch the opening tomorrow. And, you know, after a big drop like today, you might get a pop. But I think you want to fade that going into the rest of the day. Okay, let's get to the final trades for this Tuesday. Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, and I'm also looking at energy stocks. And I mentioned CBX. I think it's probably the most efficient energy name out there, integrated oil. I like Chevron. Brian Kelly. I think you want to buy things that people need, and that's potash, IPI, intrepid potash. Julie Beal. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking at Lamb Weston. It's a French fry producer. I'll probably eat enough of them today (laughs) to make their earnings better. French fry producer. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, top of my buy list is Big Cap Pharma, so I like the VHT or the XLV. Either of those get you done. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.